there's this whole like developer jokey thing about how all we do is Google on Stack Overflow, which is like the question and answer for programmers. And it's completely true. Like, why would I hit my head against the wall when I can just see if somebody else has already had the problem? You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's J.R. Flatter with our co-host, Lucas. How you doing? Pretty good. So they got Declan's haircut yesterday. Was that uh, traumatic or re- relatively? I think it went well. Lena went without me. And oh, okay. She didn't report any <laughs> freak <outs. laughs> So we're talking about today uh, in our Building a Coaching Culture podcast, this book, uh, The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly. I don't think it hardly a day goes by. I don't talk about this book and it really surprised me. You and I hadn't talked about it yet. When I'm teaching, I'm always referring to this book. And the premise of the book, it was written in 2017, which is nearly seven years ago now, depending on when you're listening to this. And so he predicted 12 things that are technologically inevitable across the next 30 years. And so just rereading the book recently and looking back seven years a lot of what he's talking about is coming true already, but also we're seven years into the 30 years. So really only have 23 years until all of these things come to fruition or, or, or some generation of them. So Kevin Kelly, if you don't know, is the co-founder of Wired magazine. He's a really strong voice in the world of technology. And of his own admission, a couple of decades ago, he was relatively libertarian, which requires one to be an individualist and he sees a very communal requirement emerging from these inevitable technologies. So just wanted to plant that seed as we walk through here. You know, what does that mean for me at the tail end of the baby boomers, you tail end of the millennials and your son and all of my grandchildren and a lot of the the listeners and viewers, what does that mean to us? across the next 30 years. And then, you know, as he wraps the book up, he tells you all these things. And the 12th thing he tells you is that we're at the very beginning of this transformation, the very beginning of the third millennial. It's pretty, a really incredible book. What are your initial thoughts? I know you've read it and took a recent look at it. I mean, yeah, you you think about all the progress we've made with the internet and there's all these theories on what's going to happen to the economy based on it, what's going to happen because of AI. And I think this kind of takes, yeah, like we're at the beginning of another radical reinvention of the office and work and data and things like that. So looking forward, instead of just saying, oh, look how much the internet's revolutionized everything, but what's going to happen next <laughs> to everything? Yeah. And I think that's one of the, the reasons I like to, at least when I'm talking about this book and these ideas talk about the ending at the beginning, 
you know, plant the seed early that all of these things, as magnificent as they are, and some of them come with significant risk, so magnificent and risky, they're only just the beginning. And one of the things he talks about is how unimaginable the future is to us, you know, introducing new realms of the possible. You and I talk about in our coaching professions, self-limiting perceptions, self-limiting beliefs. Some of these things, when I read this book seven years ago, I I hadn't even heard of the term AI. And and I looked at it again today, and it's just like, oh, wow. Now it's part of the everyday vernacular, everyday language. Whereas seven years ago, it was just something geeks might have talked about, right? Not a business person or whomever else. So I think Kevin coming from that world, but also talking to leaders, I think is a neat, a nice, unique intersection in itself. So first I thought maybe we'd talk about all 12 of them together, but it didn't really make sense as I looked at it. So I'm just going to talk about them one at a time and then whatever you want to jump in as always, but as we want to link them together or reference back and forth, we'll certainly stop and do that. So the first one that he talks about is becoming. And sometimes the title of his inevitable categories aren't intuitive. And this is one that kind of intuitive, but really wasn't by the title that he chose. But the becoming, we talk about a lot in our leadership development and coaching, coach training, entropy. And he doesn't mention that scientific term by name, but what the chapter really reminded me was, and he says it, you know, everything's falling apart around us. You buy a new computer, you buy a new phone. And the scientific principle of entropy is that, it's just that, that the world's tendency is toward disorder. And what are we doing to account for that tendency toward disorder, especially in this very disruptive phase of of technology? And the, the one bullet that really stood out for me, and again, I don't think he says this exactly, but the idea that there are no more upgrades. And again, seven years ago, when he talked about this, we were just at the cusp of having daily upgrades to everything we interact with. I get in my car now and I get a message from the manufacturer saying your map is upgrading or some technological advance is being downloaded into my computer. No more versions of Windows, no more versions of the graphical user interfaces that we use, web crawlers, whatever, however you want to describe them, they're all happening automatically. When I turn my computer off every night, I have to wait 30 seconds and it tells me, do not shut down your computer because my antivirus is upgrading every day. What do you think about when you think about this first inevitable, the becoming? Just, you know, the buzzword for programming and and web applications is software as a service. So instead of, oh, I'm going to go buy Photoshop, I'm going to subscribe to Photoshop and and like you said, continual updates. And I, I think from um, like the value creation side or the business side, you are now in the role of continually prioritizing problems and anticipating problems because what's the point of updating something, you know, every week or every day? It's because, you know, that entropy that you mentioned is causing an issue or 
the users have discovered an issue that you couldn't have anticipated and you're getting ahead of that. So you almost have to just like always be one step ahead in that kind of paradigm. Yeah, I see parallels here between very human intergenerational challenges, right? We try to put these labels on generations that I am a baby boomer. And so between 1940 something and 1960 something, but even that was back in the days when Moore's law was somewhat predictive, right? Moore's law is long ago dead and gone. The idea that doubling of technologies over time is so infinite as to be necessary to continually update. Because you think of the scale of change in 12 months in, in a single quarter. You know, as I was rereading this book and reviewing uh, our talk today, it just struck me again and again and again. Things that I had looked at only literally days ago, weeks ago, months ago, and years ago, how A, accurate Kelly was, but also B, how much had changed in a relatively short period of time. So the second topic is cognifying. And again, you and I talk about technical intelligence, cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, but I've always thought about it from the human aspect of the human brain in a cognitive mode. Kelly talks about it in a technological cognification and specifically talks about artificial intelligence. This is probably one of the more glaring, wow, that really happened. <laughs> here we are where we are in time and AI is here. It's very real. It's very accessible. It's very valuable, even to a layman like me. I'm not a technology guy. And Kelly talks about adding AI to X. And again, to jump to the end, we're only at the beginning chat GPT just hit the market within this calendar year. And I'm reminded back when the iPhone hit the market and all the peripherals started to come out. And literally, companies emerged from nowhere. Otter, for one, right? The Otter case for your phone to protect it. Nothing to do with Apple. They just added X to Y. And that's what Kelly's talking about in Cognifying. How do we take artificial intelligence and add it to almost unimaginable tasks? I know you're a computer scientist. You're probably using this every day already. I mean, I think um, something that the AI tools have been really good at is, and this is kind of by definition, these language models, they take they understand you turn it into data and then turn the data back into something that you can understand. So if you collect a bunch of survey data or user data, whatever data you're already collecting, plus AI is that insight that you would need like, you know, an expert analyst or someone with a lot of existing insight to look at the data and pull things out of the AI could tell you a story, you know. So that's super powerful. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a background in statistical analysis, and I consider myself pretty good at looking at data and teasing out relevance. Uh, oh, wow, I, I think I might see a connection here, or perhaps you know, there's a theme emerging here. 
well, you know, at the speed my brain works, now you add AI to that and it's infinite speed. It's what I would call exhaustive. So when you uh, get a doctorate, you write a dissertation. Part of that dissertation is you do a literature review. You're supposed to review the literature and concisely write about it in a chapter. And I don't care how good you are or how hard you work, you're nowhere near exhaustive. But AI, in the blink of an eye, can have an exhaustive review of the literature and present it to you in a consumable format that a layman can use. You don't have to have that cognitive intermediary that I used to be looking at hundreds of thousands of data points and, and kind of the user interface between the data and the decision maker, if you would. Yeah. And then like think about it in the reverse way. Like I wrote an essay and I want you to tell me, you know, how effective the theme is and they can give you some objective, you know, measurement of, Oh, how often did you mention it? What, strength of the language you used when you mentioned it. And that's the part that we talked early on about risk. And one of the risks of artificial intelligence is even though it's reviewing the entirety of knowledge, perhaps, which is you know a metaphor more than a reality, it still has an algorithm. And that algorithm is created by a subjective human being or a collective group of subjective human beings. It gets tweaked by human beings. It gets artificial intelligence, gets more intelligent. And so it becomes you know, knowledgeable into itself. So you know, how do you control for, we're trying to be as objective as possible, but no human being is truly objective and human beings write the algorithms. So how do you know, A, that the answer you're getting is objective, you know, making quotations with my fingers, and how do you know that it's not purposefully agenda-driven? I mean, I think that some of the other markers or what does he call them, the forces, some of them kind of get at, you know, that libertarian ideal where this is no longer centralized behind Twitter and Google and Facebook but like, yeah, the only way to have it be, you know, more of an objective truth is to get everybody's input on what's mm-hmm. valuable, what's true. I don't know why, but I'm just getting this this vision of Nemo running through the matrix, thinking it's real. And that's you and I as we interact with AI now. And you do ask it to write an essay for you. You read it. Seems to make sense. Seems jive with the knowledge that you do have, are you ever really going to know? So uh, the third topic that Kevin talks about is one of his inevitables is flowing. I really love this idea. When I first started reading the chapter, I had to read it a couple of times before it really sunk in for me. The idea of infinite duplication. And you and I might have talked about this last week in a session, but the idea that when the library in Alexandria was burned, all that lost knowledge, quote unquote, and that'll never happen again because of infinite duplication. So right now I have pictures that one of the biggest tragedies of a house burning, minus the risk of you know injury or death, 
everybody survived, but everything was gone. Pictures were gone. Love letters were gone. People's entire histories were erased in a blaze. Those days are gone. Even in the short time that I've been working with technology, there's been several reinventions of how one creates this duplication. And now it, it happens behind the scenes and I have nothing to do with it. I know that, you know, the metaphor of the cloud and I know that our technological team has put tools in place that when I close a document, it's not just sitting on the hard drive in my computer, but it's in this cloud that can't burn and that has duplication. Even if that physical presence was destroyed, there would be a duplicate of it somewhere. So that was the first part of the flowing, but then this, this idea of duplication. But then the second part is the literal death of the office metaphor. And I didn't even realize this until I, I read it in this book, but you know, we come kicking and screaming into the 21st century of all of our same labels, right? Files, desktops, as if there were a physical filing cabinet and if there were, as if there were a physical desk. We even have that image icon on our computers. Those days are going away. What do you think about this the idea of flowing? Yeah, I mean, I think about if you're trying to build like a tool, for example, like if you wanted to build an AI tool and you said, I want to take sports data and turn it into like a story or a narrative, you can connect to a data source that's providing like every new match of professional sport XYZ. And maybe you want to connect to, you know, a separate database to get like demographic information about your users. So all of this power that you can just tap into that other people are creating. And like you said earlier, those cottage industries, like maybe I provide a particular source that nobody else can. And that's now, you know, value that I'm providing to this infinite stream. <laughs> yeah. And you just connected two dots for me because one of the things I talk about a lot, and I learned this probably about your age, not for any particular reason, just did this idea of self-selection. And the world asks us to self-select, not be asked. And so if you see a connection, you see a way to use flowing, use infinite duplication uh, and create value. You don't need anybody's permission to do that in this world. You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the capital resources necessary to do that, the market curbs to entry, not only beyond the capital resources, but bureaucracies and licenses and other inhibitors, those are fading away. Kelly talks about it a little later on in this idea of this communal world that we now live in. So number four, so there's 12, and so now we're a third of the way through. Screening, and he means literally screening. This is one of those where he later on talks about filtering, but screening could be filtering. But here he literally means looking at a screen and not screening as in filtering. When he talks about this clash of cultures, and I could see this in myself even today. So as you and I are having this conversation, there's at least three very common formats of books 
if you can even call them books now. Book used to be a physical object with a cover and pages. But this clash of books, literal books versus the books on screen. Now we have you know, books on audio. A decade ago, two decades ago, they were physical on a cassette tape. But now, given the cloud and streaming and some of the other technologies, so you can literally have a book in your hand, you can have a book on the screen, or you can have a book in your ear. And this clash of books versus screens, it goes far beyond the physical to cultural. And actually something that you and I talk about a lot in our training and education is what is truth? And as I read this, it really brought to light some of the challenges we see in our culture right now. Because there are different truths in different generations, different principles, different value, different goals, different life goals, different work family self-balances. And now Kelly's introducing this clash of cultures in the physical versus the digital and boiling it all the way down to a definition of truth. And as I looked at this you know, truth to the book generation, I won't call it Boomer or Gen Z or Gen X, but the book generation, truth was law. And what did the law say? What does the Constitution say? What does uh, precedent say? But in the screen world, and this is Kelly's definition, truth is what does technology tell us? And I would say that the pattern I'm seeing is kind of, it's getting a little worse because if you think about like, we had broadcast TV and so there was like a few sources of information that would, you know, populate your screen with information and, you know, audio, video, and then VCRs, game consoles, now streaming devices. Now you use your own source of information and you would just plug it into the screen. But even like as far back as the iPad or like even the first smartphones, now the screen is attached to whatever, you know, provider. So it's almost like if you have a device that's like the screen is attached to it, then there's like an intermediary between whatever truth and you have less control. So like, I see the current state where we have monitors and TVs that are like kind of generic and agnostic to whatever they're being displayed on them. That's kind of going away. And I think in the next couple of years, in terms of like how our interaction with screens are, are going to go. Yeah, I have a recent example. I was at a trade show and I bought a device that was separate and distinct from my phone. So for the first time in a long time, I now have this device that I have to power. I plug in, put sensors on me, and it provides massage and, and different things. I can set the different settings, but it just struck me as I looked at it. Like I haven't had another device for a long time. And how long is this separate and distinct device going to survive before it gets, you know, subsumed by some of these inevitables that we're talking about here. One other one that just comes to mind before we move to the next one was like 
all those like diving computers and like adventure computers, like now the new Apple watch does all these things. And it's like this tiny sliver of the demographic that would need that, but they just destroyed a device class. Like you're saying. (laughs) Absolutely. Therein lies the beauty and the risk of this, this time that we're in. So number five, accessing, not assessing, but accessing. How do you gain access? And I really, really enjoyed this chapter and this inevitable because it's, I'm living it. I, within the last 12 months, have transitioned from, and this seems insignificant, but for a boomer, it's not cable to streaming. You want to talk about a learning curve. Where do I get live television from? Where do I get all of these shows that I've been accessing through cable television through this decades-old relationship I had with him in tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the inconvenience of having a physical cable that I had to plug everything into. And now, 12 months in or so, maybe even 18 months in, I downloaded a new app last night because there was a new show I wanted to watch. I didn't have access to it. It seemed rather seamless. And so Kelly talks about accessing versus possessing, right? For my entire life, I've heard and said the phrase, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And even there's precedent in law. Who has it physically? Well, those days are going away. Uh, There are things we still physically possess. I have this pen. I have this phone. I have this computer, this desk. But a lot of the value I have, I don't physically have it. It's floating digitally somewhere. Why would you have, why would you own anything when you can borrow everything legally? Not just your neighbor's lawnmower, but movies, cars. And probably one that struck me the most was the idea of dematerialization. And I know that sounds very fancy, but you you think about the size of this phone versus what it would have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and things are just getting smaller and smaller, less material. It's not the idea that we're becoming less materialistic. It's the idea that literally the materials we're using are getting smaller and smaller and less and less. And we're borrowing a lot more rather than having to physically possess it. What do you think about accessing? You're a streamer. I know you are. Yeah, yeah. I learned from you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think about if you go back to like the cassettes and vinyls and CDs, like it's a physical media that you need technology in order to access in a way, because, you know, I guess you could create your own record player potentially, but anything more complicated than that, you need to ask, you know, Sony or Hisense or whatever to make you a VCR, you know, because you're not going to figure that out. So it's like from a consumer level, it's like, okay, if I've got to plug this DVD player into my TV already, like, why am I like now having this physical totem of the of the movie instead of just oh, I'm, I just want to watch it? But then you think about going back to like these centralized sources. Now they know when you're watching something. You know how many times you watched it, who was in the room probably when you watched it, etc. Oh yeah, this is where we're getting into uh, tracking, which is later on. And I was reminded, as recently as yesterday, we're not completely into this accessing place because 
who are the red boxes that you, that are outside of drugstores where you can go physically get? A, yeah, they're just red box. That's yeah, red box. That's it. That would, that's what they're called. So some, you know, we're not completely through this, but then it has on the red box. Oh, you don't really even need to do this because you could just stream it from here. <laughs> so they're in the middle of that transition. One of the classic business stories is that story of Netflix versus. What's the name of the blockbuster? Least, yeah, yeah, blockbuster. There's one blockbuster left. At least there was last time I checked. No, they didn't make that transition. Hopefully, Redbox can do that. So, accessing to sharing, and this is probably for me the hardest one to swallow, just because of my own life view. Communal aspects of the digital culture, and you know a lot more about this than I do. So I'll I'll be quiet, but. If you think about the 20th century version of this would have been, you know, I grew up as a farmer. And so we had co-ops where the farmers would get together and buy things in bulk so they could share in, in the scale. Or a communal farm where a group of people would get together back in the frontier days. We needed those groups for protection. But now we're doing this kind of communal sharing in a digital world. I'd really love to hear your thoughts on this idea of this communal aspect. Yeah, I mean, part of it is the fact that, you know, we can share so much. So if somebody invents a solution for something that just works 100% of the time, it's probably going to be shared across industries. And whether it has a single source or not, you know, it's the same algorithm or it's the same piece of code. So there's this very egalitarian kind of idea in software development where there's plenty of like industry-wide used pieces of code as libraries that are just completely open source so like anybody can update them anybody can download it anybody can take it modify it and then even create sold products with it and like if you're developing something you're always thinking what's out there that is already being shared that I can use. And even if I'm not using any libraries, like I mentioned, you can also just, oh, I have this problem. Let me look up people that have already asked this question. Like there's this whole like developer jokey thing about how all we do is Google on Stack Overflow, which is like the question and answer for programmers. And it's completely true. Like why would I hit my head against the wall when I can just see if somebody else has already had the problem. Yeah, I think I'd go right back to AI and, and the battle AI is having with traditional education. You know, it reminds me when I was a young, even before a teenager, a company called Texas Instruments came out with this handhold calculator that a person, a, a normal person could afford. Uh, and the entire education system went up in arms about now children are going to be stupid and they're going to cheat on tests, et cetera, et cetera. And you're hearing the same chatter with AI. I think it was Einstein who said, you know, why would I memorize anything that's written down already? I could just look at it in the book. And the same is true for me in, of AI. You know, and, and it comes to a larger theme of all these inevitables and a larger theme of change. You could wish to sweep back the ocean and good luck trying but these things, as Kelly said, are inevitable. And so even for me, get on board, be an adopter rather than 
would be the exact opposite of an adopter. Mm, naysayer like a luddite <laughs> yeah a luddite i was looking for that word today luddite because uh, one of the the topics is really relevant to the luddites everything that's ever been invented has already been invented so how do i coalesce capitalism and the communal nature of the digital culture because capitalism for better or worse is me seeking my interest in the marketplace, just you know, we talked about otter. We talked about self-selecting ourselves if we see an opportunity. So, what? How do you coalesce individualism in this communal twenty-first century digital world? Yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking about that when I, I was reading Jurassic Park like last year, and that was written in the nineties, and they're talking about how you know the internet. Everybody thinks it's going to make everyone more into individualistic and more innovation, all these ideas popping up all over the place. But it kind of, in a lot of ways, what they were predicting in the book was that there's more, it just pushes some voices to the top and you might lose some of that innovation because like I said earlier, my convenience is I don't have to solve this problem, but potentially if I, solve 10 problems for myself, maybe one of them is unique and innovative, which I might be avoiding. So I guess, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I think maybe it's going to reduce individualism for a while. All right, number seven, filtering. I go back to the idea of screening. This is literally filtering, as you might think it would mean reducing the size and Kelly uses a very interesting example here that all recorded music is about 720 terabytes. And in 2017, when he wrote this book, it would have cost you $72,000 to buy that size of storage. And so every song ever recorded, you could have had in the size of a brick for $72,000. And now that same storage is $720, one tenth. And again, projecting to the future, I'm sure it's going to go down by a scale of 10 again. So with all of that available to you, how do you literally filter all of that information into some usable framework? Uh, in the military world, there's this idea of joint all domain command and control. And it's a very fancy way of saying across all of the ways that one could fight and land, sea, air, space, cyber are the five domains, you know, getting all of that information to every warrior is a great ideal, but with infinite data, how do you filter it? And so that's what number uh, chapter seven, inevitable seven is all about, is finding a way to filter that. And I just found myself doing it today. Um, I'm having my car washed. And literally, the guy is 10 feet away, but I used the front desk. I left the key at the front desk and asked the front desk attendant, hey, when the car wash guy gets here, can you please interact with him and filter out that one activity that'll allow me to do another activity? So it's very real. Yeah, I guess um, that story kind of made me think like you have all these experiences all day, every day. and how do you even make sense of any of that? And usually it's like 
some kind of narrative like there's a beginning, middle, and end to the day, and this person went against me, <laughs> and I, this person helped me. And I kind of think about, like right now, you think about these filters as, okay, the algorithm's recommending me something because I listen to this, they think I want to listen to this, or because I'm this age. And that's like the 2017 version probably, but at some point you're going to see these like meta narratives around, oh, you're going on like a musical journey and, and you know, you're going to have all these different experiences and we're planning it out for you and, and making it more of like an interactive journey. And I think one of the two forward is interactive. So that's kind of part of this futuristic experience we're going to have. Yeah, you've just coached me because this is exactly what a coach does. You connected two dots for me. You and I talk about principles all the time. And I just connected the dots. The principles are a way of filtering. Not right or wrong, not judgmental. This is for me, and was for our family, maybe perhaps even for our company, one of our principles, two of our principles. And it helps us filter what do we say yes to and what do we say no to. Uh, without having to go through those terabytes of data. And relationships. Like, yeah, there's a lot of human things. <laughs> like, yeah, like oh, yeah. by having a wife or child, you're now having a completely different experience. Yeah, saying yes to one thing closed the door to uh, many other things. So number eight, I love this idea of remixing. You've referenced this indirectly a couple of times. And I go back to what my, one of my physics lessons that, always comes to mind that the mass of the universe is constant. And that's kind of Kelly's idea of remixing. So the world has finite resources. We have finite time. And so how do we use an inevitable to take advantage of what we have? And that is the idea of remixing. We see it in movies. We see it in products. Large car manufacturers almost never innovate. They follow the innovation of the little guys and gals who take the risk, you know, the keyless entry or automatic windows or halogen headlights, you know, let somebody else take the risk. And then if it works, we'll adopt it. You know, that's the idea of remixing. And I love this quote from him, the supreme fungibility of digital bits. I don't know why that struck me so uh, almost whimsical, but... Yeah, it's absolutely true. In the digital world, fungibility is just talking about how change, how you can change things. And this idea of infinite change within the digital world, I find really intriguing. Yeah. I mean, the thing that came to mind for me when I read this one was like all the history of video games, you can play them all on your computer now. And they used to be like on proprietary hardware. So there were all these barriers like, oh, I need this old Nintendo or this old, you know, whatever hardware. But now it's like any computer like from the past five years can play everything. So I was thinking about it like, what if, you know, there were no barriers and and I can jump from here to here to here to here. So kind of what I'm going back to where like I'm not selecting one experience and then selecting another experience but yeah give me peanut butter and jelly you know give me two experiences at once just by 
that fungibility of bits, take the code from here, take the code from here. And that's, that's super labor intensive right now, but you know, in a couple of years, it could be streamlined. Well, the idea that I could talk into my remote control and get pretty high predictability that I'm going to find the show I'm actually looking for, even if I'm pronouncing it with an accent. We're at number nine now, so we're into the last third of these interacting. And this is us as human beings interacting with the digital world and how inevitable that is. And we might commonly call that virtual reality, which, again, when he wrote this book, virtual reality was one of those phrases that you might have heard occasionally and it's in its early days of actually being available to a common person in any usable work way. And so the phrase that really sticks out for me when Kelly's talking about this virtual reality and our interaction with it was this unshakable sense of presence. And I, I pulled that directly from the book. That's his quote. And again, high reward, but also high risk here. One of the things that perpetuates our species is our interactions with one another. And it's very common to see people walking down a sidewalk with a set of headphones on, purposely not interacting with any other human being, but interacting with the digital world. I think there's a risk here. If we somehow remove the need to interact with one another completely, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, when you think about interaction with the computer, it's like, you know, how am I transmitting my information to the computer, like either by typing or clicking or scrolling, if I have a game controller? But all of those are like so much more limited than what we do every day with our hands and picking things up and, you know, looking at things and making facial expressions. And so we're getting closer to the point where, you know, Right now we have the technology where I can look at somewhere on the screen and and the screen knows it and, and I can select things that way. But like having everything that I can, you know, portray as a person be recognized by some kind of program, whether it's VR and then interaction also, you know, every force has an opposite and equal reaction. So because it's just my hands in the air like i need like extra feedback visually that tells me okay the computer knows that you know my hands just moved so i think about like okay what are we how are we going to be interacting like am i going to be wearing gloves or glasses or what's the hardware going to be i guess i see if we do get to that point then yeah there won't be much difference between interacting with like somebody across the country versus in the same room. And that's, they've been saying that for 30 years as well, right? <laughs> it's like they're in the same room with you. <laughs> I almost hesitate to say that, you know, we're really talking about the matrix now, right? Nemo's really in the matrix now. And I guess this goes back to Kelly's 12th inevitable and that the fact that we're at the beginning. We have nearly 8 billion people on the planet right now. And Elon Musk is talking about, yeah, we have to get to Mars because we're going to run out of things here. I suspect in my heart of hearts that we're going to figure this out. And it's not going to be the catastrophic outcome that one might imagine. 
of the, the matrix and none of us are really actually interacting with one another. So on to number 10, and this is one that's probably the most real for me, the idea of tracking. For years, you could buy a second home somewhere in a tax-free state and claim that you live there because you had a home there. Those days are gone. There are so many sensors for good, bad, or indifferent available to the world right now that the world knows where you are. I almost said they, that there's actually somebody out there watching. But there are different groups of people watching for different reasons. People want to sell you stuff. People want to tax you. People want to, whatever they want to do and how they use those sensors. Traffic, travel a lot. And so every time I get on a flight, every time I get on a train, the world knows I was on that train. Ride share. Did I get a ride or a Lyft or Uber? Yeah, the world's tracking you. And from the idea that the more sensors there are, the more that we can be tracked and are tracked, how do you have privacy? The world knows how much gas you're using. The world knows how much electricity you're using, how much water you're using, what you're eating, because it knows what the world knows through its sensors, what you're buying at the store. Again, great reward, but high potential risk. Yeah, I think the most negative thing I see all the time is products that are optimized based on whatever they're tracking. So, you know, you can kind of tell when something, it's like, okay, why is this user experience different? But it's not easier for me. It's more frustrating for me. It's like, it's because of some reason. And the reason is usually, well, this keeps people on the platform longer, or it keeps you scrolling to the next thing longer. And so, it's like sometimes by tracking all this information, they change the product. And now they're not really tracking what they were originally tracking. They're now, you know, doing this social experiment on people. But then, like, from a benefit side, I don't know if Brittany was telling me that her teenage daughter was saying, like, that the young people like appreciate when they get like recommended things based on ads. They're like, well, they know me and it, it made me easier to select, you know, the next pair of pants I buy or something. And I guess if you think about it, like the ultimate smartphone would be like a personal assistant that actually knows you. And like if a real physical personal assistant is going to follow you around all day, they're going to know where you're going and where you're driving and everything. So it's like, do I want to trust like one point of failure that like knows everything about me? You know, that's a great example. I hadn't even connected those two odds. There you go again. I spend hours and hours and hours planning travel. I like to leave at a certain time and arrive at a certain time, take non-stops. I'm really agnostic on who takes me or even the mode of transportation. And where I stay, where I eat, that takes hours and hours and hours. I would love to have somebody tracking that for me and just say, I want to go to St. Louis and spend one night. Can you please travel that, given my parameters? Yeah, I, I can see where Faye's going with that. I don't mind that. I don't mind even being tracked. I don't mind that when I buy gas in Florida or if I buy gas in Virginia, that there's a sensor that knows the IRS has access to that data. I don't mind that. Ultimately, you would hope 
like I brought up the example of like them, it's like poor optimization, but if they have the ability, like instead of on Twitter, they're optimizing for money, they're optimizing for like how much joy I'm having while I'm using Twitter. Or like if the government says like, how do we optimize for human happiness, you know, and then let's make the laws based on that. Yeah. And the challenge is it's so individualized. It's literally infinite. It's the reason we all take personality profiles. We all have different preferences. And they're often, if not regularly, irrational. Like you can't show me the logic, how you chose your life spouse or how I chose my life partner. But we did. And probably given 10 choices, we would have always chosen pretty close to the same thing. All right, number 11, questioning. And I think this was probably one of the more powerful ones and really speaks to me across generation. I look across the room and I have three, what I would call sheepskins there, the degrees that I have and the authority or the expertise that they demonstrate. Well, not so much anymore, right? Age used to be a questioning factor. Do you have sufficient wisdom? Do you have sufficient experience? Um, Not so much anymore. So some real challenges. There's real value, but also some real challenges. One of them is, yeah, making mistakes and, and having repetitions, different experiences creates muscle memory, creates wisdom. So there's something to be said to that. So we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But also, I'm pretty confident the 21st century is telling us you probably don't need a sheepskin hanging on your wall to prove your excellence or to prove your expertise in any given area. You got a young son. The idea that questioning is inevitable, he's going to question you and Lena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, the questions are always pointing to like unknown things and and if if i can quickly find the answer to something it's probably you know either been done before in some way or you know figured out to the point where it's not worth a whole lot of thought so like there's a whole ton of opportunity in like we mentioned earlier just connecting several known quantities but in a way that nobody's done it before like the combination is novel but the questions are what lead to actual novelty, I think, like new ideas. Yeah, and I wrote in the notes as I was getting ready for today. This is one of those life-changing events for its significance or even insignificance. I think I was a little older than I wrote down, but in the third or the fourth grade, and we had this computer scientist that came in. I mean, you can think about it in 1970 what computers looked like. And I raised my hand and asked this scientist, are we ever going to have a robot that walks independent and is computerized? And he laughed at me. He said, son, do you have any idea how big that computer would need to be? It would literally fill this gymnasium. Sit down. And even at that age, would I've been eight or nine years old? It's like, I'm not so sure this guy's right. And so maybe you benefited this as you're coming up that maybe I didn't know and maybe I should listen. 
and have an open mind about these things. Yeah, like thinking about your own experiences and yeah, when that coaching kind of leadership or mentorship came up versus when somebody just told you to do something and people talk about those like pivotal moments, you know, all the time. Like if that guy would have said like, Oh, you know what? That's really interesting. Computers are shrinking this fast and you know, it'll take 45 years for that. (laughs) Then maybe you would like your curiosity would be opened up a little. All right. Number 12. um, We've been talking about this the whole time. We're just at the beginning. Kelly grabs this phrase that he calls the holos. I think it's an acronym of the holosphere. He doesn't say distinctly whether it is or isn't, but the idea that here at the beginning of the third millennial, we're a quarter of the way through the first century of the third millennial, the scale of what's to come is almost unimaginable. And I find that both very exciting, but also not threatening, but there's significant risk. Um, I heard a, a phrase recently that you know, we fought two world wars already, and the, the catastrophic outcomes of those, and you know, where will the third world war leave us? You know, that's the unimaginable scale of destruction that this digital age can bring, adding AI to X, as Kelly says. But on the very positive side, if we can figure out how to live with one another and use this for good rather than destruction, I think it's going to be incredible. Uh, My as of yet born great-grandchildren are going to live in a very, very different world than you and I grew up and then their great-grandchildren. So it's Moore's law to the hundredth scale. I think like it's pretty much that idea that like we mentioned earlier of like everybody controlling all information and all technology, but then it's like yeah, like the current paradigm is kind of like different nations are defending themselves and, you know, different people attached to different nations. But yeah, you're talking about getting rid of all borders and like everybody behaving as like a planetary, you know. So it's like who's no, if nobody's making decisions, it's like no centralized source. How are we? soliciting those and making sure that everybody's like happy with the outcome like do we need to convince an ai that like we can keep our nukes or something you know what i mean like yeah i saw a funny uh, video last night it was a self-driving car and the police officer was asking it to pull over they had a construction it was at a construction site and the car couldn't understand what the hand signals were all about and kept edging forward, like, hey, get out of my way. I'm, yeah, from a very human perspective, how do we learn to, to get along with one another when, like you said, borders and nation states and no curbs to entry to markets, and therefore a lot of the value of a central government fades away it's going to be some real challenges, some great beauty, but some great challenges too. But I can imagine the Luddites, you know, being here in the first century of the third millennia would be like, wow, how did that happen? But even like people that do participate, there's going to be, you know, 
bad actors, <laughs> people oh, yeah. making like poor choices and selfish choices and et cetera. All right, my friend. Well, that's it. The 12 inevitables across the next 30 years. Probably one of the reasons I love the book so much is I, we talk about 30 year visions all the time. And along comes Kevin Kelly and doing the same thing. Just kind of backs up the idea that we do need to be looking decades into the future and taking action today to take advantage of and thrive and survive and, and amongst all that change. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.